This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Good evening, everybody. I can already tell it's a very troublemaking crowd here. Um, thank you all so much for coming out tonight. I'm Lisa Muscatine. I'm one of the co-owners of Politics and Prose, and along with my husband and co-owner, Brad Graham, and our incredible staff, we welcome all of you to this event here at this beautiful, magnificent Six and I. We have a wonderful partnership uh, with our friends here. It's such a joy and such a privilege uh, for us to host Cecile Richards tonight for many reasons. Uh, first, and perhaps most obviously, for all of us at PNP at least, because she's an author. That is no mean feat. Um, tonight, she'll be discussing her new book. It's called Make Trouble, Standing Up, Speaking Out, and Finding the Courage to Lead. Now, Cecile is also, of course, uh, the outgoing president of Planned Parenthood, having run the organization, <laughs> having run the organization for 12 years, championing its mission again and again and again and again, especially when women's health opportunities have come under relentless attack, even just this week and seemingly constantly right now. Uh, Cecile's an activist, an advocate, a feminist, a progressive, a leader, and perhaps most of all, as the title of her book suggests, a troublemaker. Now maybe that's in her DNA, maybe it's just a lifetime of rocking the boat. Whatever its root, Cecile's example is exactly what we need right now in 2018 when record numbers of women are running for elective office, speaking out about sexual harassment and assault in, the, in their schools and workplaces, joining picket lines for better pay in underserved school districts, marching for gun control, demanding that their voices be heard. So think of this book as a Bible for activists, progressives, and of course for women, one that offers this necessary gospel, a gospel really for these times. It's always time to act. When you read Make Trouble, you'll understand that Cecile's penchant for resistance began early in her school principal's office, to be exact. When she was called in to explain the black armband she wore in protest of the Vietnam War. She didn't stop with her crusades in school, though. She organized janitorial workers unionizing in California. She helped her mother, who I once or twice had the privilege of meeting and even sitting next to at a dinner, which I will never forget as long as I live. Uh, the indomitable and wonderful Ann Richards become the first progressive woman ever to be elected governor of Texas. And, and if, only, if only we, if she were here now, I can only imagine some of the tweets she'd be putting out. Um, and for those of us who gave a minute or an hour or a day or more trying to elect the first woman president in 2016, Cecile was right there with us maybe a few steps ahead actually, uh, traveling to state after state on behalf of Hillary Clinton while her own daughter was part of the campaign team in Iowa as well. Make Trouble isn't just a memoir, it's a call to action, a reminder that fighting for a just cause is always worth it, that one must never give in or give up, even when the hurdles are many and winning seems a distant fantasy that every fight can end with exhilarating success 
or heartbreaking loss. And one point that's often overlooked that she makes very forcefully in her book is that act activism can also be fun. And if you don't believe that last point, just keep in mind that Cecile met her husband, Kirk, helping to organize hotel workers in New Orleans. Very romantic. Um, I was told earlier today that at a recent book event, someone in the audience yelled out to her, you don't make trouble, you make sense. Why not both? I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. Um, tonight, we're also really delighted that one of the best known and most respected journalists in Washington and across our country, Karen Tumulty, will be in conversation with Cecile. Karen, of course, is a columnist for the Washington Post, well known to many of you who read the paper every day. She was, for many years, the paper's a national political correspondent. She began covering national politics for Time magazine, and we are so fortunate to have her with us tonight as well. Please join me in welcoming Cecile Richards and Karen Tumulty. Well, again, thank you all for, everybody can hear me. Uh, thank you all for being here. And um, I'm just delighted because uh, in addition to having covered Cecile for a lot of years, I am also a native Texan. And as, uh, as I was reading the book, I emailed Cecile and said, I was reading her growing up in Austin and realized that I got grounded for a lot of the same things you were doing. So. Uh, so uh, before we start here tonight, I want to ask you about one episode in the book that seems to be getting a lot of attention. Let me guess. <laughs> that is uh, shortly after the inauguration, uh, you had a meeting with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, and they had a deal for you. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And... Uh... Yeah, it is written about in the book, so essentially after the inauguration, and for those of you who are here in Washington, you remember that the inauguration happened and the day after, the largest marches in recorded history in the United States happened, <laughs> women's marches, and um, I think that's important to set the stage because uh, not long after that, I, I, through someone else, I got a call saying that Ivanka Trump was interested in talking to me about Planned Parenthood because it was already being discussed that the Republican, well, Donald Trump had said it during the election, or during the campaign, he wanted to defund Planned Parenthood, and Paul Ryan, of course, had pledged to do the same, and she wanted to talk. And, you know, as much as I was, frankly, concerned about doing that kind of meeting, uh, I thought if there was any chance to plead our case and basically um, tell her more about what we do and how important it is to the millions of people who count on us for health care, I would take the meeting, and so, uh, but I uh, got my husband, Kirk, who's sitting down here to go with me as uh, my witness or bodyguard or, I don't know, just whatever, um, and it turned out it was with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, and um, at the Bedford, or I don't know, it's a golf course somewhere in New Jersey, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> a golf course owned by Donald Trump, um, and Anyway, we, so we, we, we met, and I opened up just immediately to say, you know, I don't know what you know about Planned Parenthood, but one in five women in this country go to Planned Parenthood for health care. 
And the money that you're talking about taking away, the defunding of Planned Parenthood, which has nothing to do with abortion services, it has everything to do with denying women access to affordable family planning, you know, cancer screening and the like, it would be devastating because many of our patients, we're the only healthcare provider uh, that, that they have. And um, anyway, the conversation went on and basically Ivanka Trump said to me, well, you have to understand my father is pro-life. And I, and I, um, I said, well, I, you know, whatever he is, that's his business, but he doesn't have the right to take away the right of, you know, to safe and legal abortion to every woman in America. And that's important. And so, in any case, um, it, it came down to the fact that basically Jared Kushner's proposal was that if Planned Parenthood would discontinue providing abortion services to women, then he was pretty confident he could continue to get us federal funding and maybe even more federal funding. And I said that wasn't going to happen, that uh, we would never tra trade away women's rights uh, or access to this service for money. And uh, I really hoped that they would rethink it. But basically, his point of view was, well, the Republicans controlled everything, so if we wanted to make a deal, we better make it pretty fast. And I just By said, the way, worth pointing out that the federal funding that Planned Parenthood gets for providing medical services is not for abortion. Well, that's right, and I, I think they knew that, but I explained it again, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of getting, I, it's weird, I'm getting agitated again, just like thinking about the whole thing. Uh, it's very, it was very frustrating to feel like we're talking about the fate of millions of women in this country, um, and young people, and men who rely on us for care, and it all seemed to be coming down to some kind of political trade-off. And I just said, like, that is not who we are. That is not what we do. Uh, and so, you know, I just said, look, I think we've said what we can say. There didn't seem to be a lot more conversation to be had. Um, we left and we went to battle. And I'm really proud of the fact, and there's a lot of people in this room from Planned Parenthood, I'm sure, that should get, that get enormous amount of credit. But even though they controlled everything, uh, and even though Paul Ryan said there would be a bill on, on President Trump's desk by early February that repealed Obamacare and defunded Planned Parenthood, Collectively, thousands of people around this country beat that back, and our doors are still open all across the United States today. Um, so, And was that the end of it, or have you had any sort of continuing conversation, or, or have they had any conversation with people at Planned Parenthood? Well, I don't think they've talked to anybody else. I... Uh, I got a couple other inquiries from Ivanka to see how we were doing on making a deal. And I said, well, there is no deal. I said, I told you, this is what we do. And of course, then she uh, went on to become the, now a federal employee, the highest ranking woman in the White House. But if there's been any efforts to mitigate the agenda of this administration when it comes to women, I haven't seen any evidence uh, so far. And Again, I think they made a full-throated effort to defund us, and every single time they do, we're gonna fight back, and actually, every time they do, we get stronger. I mean, that's the interesting thing to me, Karen, and I talk about this for, for folks who were involved in that fight over Obamacare. I remember, you know, I mean, it was very difficult, and there was a scene, and I, I think I recount in the book, where they called the, the White House, and Mike Pence, the Vice President, called the Freedom Caucus over the White House to negotiate the final deal so they could get the votes uh, to repeal Obamacare and their new 
the Trump Care bill. And you know what the deal was they made? It was to get rid of maternity benefit coverage for thousands of women in this country. And, I, and I'm, as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, oh my God, I wish I could get a photograph of that room because I know it's frankly all white men sitting there. And wouldn't you know it, Mike Pence tweets out a photograph right then of <laughs> like, so sometimes as an organizer, you know, it's, you gotta be good and talented, sometimes you just gotta be lucky. Uh, and that was one of those moments. But I do think it, is, it was that fight over um, defending Planned Parenthood, defending women's access to maternity benefits and a lot else that has fueled uh, such an incredible resistance among women in this country over this last year. It's like nothing I've ever seen. In fact, one of the estimates are that of, of the, the phone calls that were coming into Congress during this fight, um, one of the apps that people use to phone Congress, 86% um, of those calls, they believe, were coming from women. So uh, I think we've unleashed something in America that um, is really powerful. It's really powerful. So um, as, as Lisa mentioned, I mean, there are record numbers of women running for office this year at every level. I, I've been struck by the number of women. Last I looked, it was something like 80 women in the running for governor, which has been... It, that's been almost a higher ceiling to get women to run for executive office. Um, but we've seen these, certainly not these numbers, but we've seen surges in the past, and then they sort of plateau. Do you feel like this year is different in the types of women choosing to run for office, and what happens after this election? So I think that what's different is that not only women are running for office in, in record numbers, but women are becoming activists in record numbers. I think that's, so it's, because I think elections are one part of it, but another part of this, of course, is pushing forward an agenda, finally, uh, uh, on a whole host of issues uh, for equity, equity for women. But I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples that really have inspired me. I know, I mean, since we were here near, near Virginia, of course, seeing what happened in the Virginia elections, to have the first transgender woman elected to the Commonwealth, to the, you know, into the legislature. That's, uh, it was incredible. Um, the first, the first two Latinas uh, as well, uh, which is, uh, yeah, exactly. And, and I just think we're seeing in, in uh, state after state after state, I won't recount them all, women defying all kinds of odds. And that's inspiring to other women, even just to run, uh, even if they don't win the first time. But, and I will say, this is, um, I think things are also changing because um, the diversity of women running. And so since we're both Texans, and it's very hard to brag on our state sometimes, but the really one of the most exciting things that happened um, this year is that the first two Latinas, barring some kind of uh, really uh, unforeseen event, the first two Latinas are going to come to Congress from Texas, Sylvia Garcia and Veronica Escobar, the first time in our history of Texas. And that's... That's a huge, that's a huge thing, really. And what about, though, I mean, it's just the arithmetic of elections that most of these women are going to lose. Um, and you have a lot of, you know, your own experiences and activism, your mom's experience. I mean, in politics, there comes winning and there comes losing. What do you learn from losing and what do you think these women should take from that experience? Well, maybe one of them is just, I mean, a lot of us just lost a really big race uh, in 2016. And, and I feel like 
it has done nothing but fuel women and women's activism in a way that has been unprecedented. And I hope that's actually the lesson we get, which is, um, you know, you, you may not, and again, if you're anything, you know, like my book is all full of all kinds of, you know, winning battles and losing battles, but, you know, I think if you're really fighting for something important, you're always going to lose more than you're going to win. And so I think it's important to just keep, keep trying. And I do want to point out, because uh, I know maybe this is just my chance to shout out my friends here, but, you know, the morning after the election, um, the presidential election, when a lot of folks were really having a hard time even just getting out of bed, maybe some people in this room, uh, the amazing thing to me, and I think this is just the resilience, um, not only of women, but you know, all across the country, folks that work at Planned Parenthood, doctors and clinicians and escorts and staff, they got up regardless of what had happened the night before and they showed up at healthcare centers and there were women there waiting for them, desperately hoping someone would be there to provide them healthcare. And that to me shows the kind of resilience we just have to show going forward is that uh, you just have to keep on going. And I don't think anyone would have expected after the what was a really devastating presidential loss that we would have seen the largest marches in the history of the United States. And that happened because people are not willing to give up and women aren't willing to give up, I believe. You know, as, as you read this book, um, it, it feels like your mom was almost sitting on your shoulder as you, as you wrote it. What do you think Ann Richards would make of this moment of having Donald Trump in the White House, having the kind of activism that we are seeing out in the country. Well, and if, you know, I know it was said earlier, I just, there are many things I regret, but we lost mom way too early. Um, I just can't believe Twitter was invented after she passed because it would be um, so wonderful uh, to have her in that, in that space. Um, I, I mean, I think that there's, look, I think there are a lot of things about Donald Trump that wouldn't surprise her. You know, it's interesting when someone was asking me today, you know, when she ran her race for governor, as you probably remember, she was running against a businessman who had no public service, had never done anything, in, in, you know, uh, really for anybody else. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a sexist. He made crude jokes and comments about women. And she just barely beat him. And so I think there were so many, you know, so many things about this most recent presidential race that were way too familiar. Um, although, as I will point out, Hillary Clinton did get three million more votes uh, than the person who's in the White House now. So I guess important. But, um, but anyway, I just had to get that in, um, in in case people forget. But I do think that mom would be so excited to see the outpouring of women's activism. I, I mean... She was a woman who, there's nothing that gave her greater joy than the success of other women. And she would be right out there campaigning for women, egging them on, encouraging young women to go for it. And I talk a lot in the book about just the lessons she uh, gave to me and a lot of other women about taking chances and taking risks and that this is the only life you get. So no do-overs, no regrets. Um, and as she used to say, and maybe this is something to say to women who are, are, who are running these races that they may not win, is like, what's the worst thing that could happen, you know? And maybe the worst thing is happen. well, the worst thing that could happen is that we don't do something about the current government. <laughs> that would be a really bad thing. But I think that um, in, in, in a lot of these circumstances, you know, you lose and then you keep going on. She was a big believer in that. So um, you got your start in the labor movement. Um, which also has had its challenges. Um, 
But we've really seen something interesting happened there as well. I, I think that Connor Lamb would tell you that he would not have won had it not been for the kind of mobilization that we that he had on the ground and the kind of, you know, the activism of the unions. We've seen the teachers in West Virginia and in Oklahoma. What is your sense of this moment for the labor movement, given that they are also facing some pretty tough challenges in the Supreme Court as well. Well, I think that, I mean, what we're seeing, and I've, I've been reading the same articles as, as I think everyone else has, and that 75% of these folks out on the picket line, folks that are public school teachers that are underpaid are women. And I do think that this is, it is just more evidence that women are shaking the foundation of this country in so many different ways. And I mean, reading these stories about what it's like to work two jobs just so you can be a public school teacher. And I think, of course, we're seeing what, is, what happens if after decades of neglect of starving the public school system. And it's really exciting to see, you know, again, a lot of women saying enough is, enough is enough. So I think it's, I don't know if it's about the labor movement per se, but what the labor movement about is about is justice and is economic justice. And I think that is one thing that right now as we're seeing growing inequality, uh, I think this is the evidence that people are willing to fight back. I, it's been unbelievably inspiring. And as someone who is, um, all three kids of mine are pro products of the public school, including one who went through the entire DC public school system, I'm so grateful um, to people who teach in the public school system and keep it alive. Um, it's one of the most important democratic institutions we have in this country. So, and and it would nice it would be really nice to have a secretary of education who had actually spent time in a public school, you know. Um, and. Um, the numbers I've seen, uh, Planned Parenthood plans to spend something like $30 million. Uh, the, now, we can go through the legal, I mean, there's Planned Parenthood, and then there's the political arm of Planned Parenthood, but let's just say, for the purposes of discussing here, when I say yeah. Planned Parenthood. It's the action fund right. and the PAC, and yes. But $30 million seems like it's a lot of money. It sounds like the kind of figure that you might normally see in a presidential year, not an off year. What what are these resources gonna do? Well, I think the stakes are really high this year for everyone, and so I think that it's a matter of, you know, folks very focused on United States senators who have been champions for women. I mean, essentially, it is the United States Senate, including two very important Republican women senators who don't get enough credit, Susan Collins and Lisa Burkowski, who stood up for women uh, against their caucus. I think, you know, holding the Senate is critical changing these governor's races and really changing the you know state legislatures so there is a lot uh, there's a lot to do and there's just a lot of enthusiasm but i think i guess what i would say is i think the most important thing that planned parenthood action fund and planned parenthood can contribute is um is also the energy of our our supporters and this is one of the things you know my 12 years at planned parenthood we really have invested in a whole new generation of young people and i talk about a lot of them in the book, people that I've met along the way, um, who are just amazing. But you know, we've gone from three million supporters when I started to now more than 11 million uh, in, in this country. And you know, if you're trying to do the math, that's actually more than twice the size of the National Rifle Association, okay? So I think it's like, um, 
just to, but who's counting? It's just that I think, but why that matters is that, you know, if every single person who was a Planned Parenthood supporter was active in this next election, we would absolutely change, uh, I think, the, the political direction of, of the country. And, and in that, and in a funny way, you know, we talk about these attacks from the administration, from politicians, I feel like every time that they go after Planned Parenthood, it actually, it just, it puts a focus on us and it allows people to remember how important Planned Parenthood is and was in their lifetime. And I was, I, I have to admit, I was even surprised to see last week there was a poll by Fox News, which is not our strongest ally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and in their own national poll, and I'm sure it pained them to report it, we were the most popular organization in America. Uh, and that's a, that's a lot of, that, it, and we found that in elections, an election, after election, is that knocking on the door of someone and saying, you know, I'm here from Planned Parenthood and I want to talk to you about what's at stake for health care, um, is a very different kind of conversation. And a lot of folks actually want to have it. Well, you've also, another big part of our political environment is this whole issue with fake news. Yes. And you open the book with sort of the, your testimony in front of Congress, in front of the House, uh, after your own experience with fake news. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? The You were set, essentially Planned Parenthood was set up with some doctor sting videos. Um, how do you deal with this information environment? Right. So yes, in fact, we, um, I mean, that was just the last in a series of attacks that we have been under of, of fake news and um, those kinds of smear campaigns. And so for those of you who blessedly missed that five hours plus of testimony, uh, it was a hearing before one of the five congressional committees that were convened to investigate Planned Parenthood. I think more committees than Enron, than the financial scandal, than, I mean, this was like a big deal. And so I, I did um, have to prepare for that hearing. I'd never, I'd never been before Congress in that kind of really very hostile environment. Um, so, but it was interesting, I mean, and I, and I talk, I do open up the story with it because it was, um, it was a really important moment for all of us. It wasn't a hearing in the sense that I think to have a hearing, people have to be actually there to listen, but it was really, it was much more of a, you know, it was all a show. It was, you know, basically pretty much angry men trying to make me look bad in order to make Planned Parenthood look bad. And so everything was for the TV cameras. Um, but I found, and of course it opened with Jason Chaffetz, um, who's, well, Who's, who's since retired, he's not in Congress anymore, um, anyway. <laughs> but, but I mean, the, the fake news was actually, it was kind of funny because that is how it opened when he wanted to, he, he made some opening statement and then he wanted to like make this big reveal and he had a big chart that somehow showed, I don't know, it was showing something about abortion rates and I don't know, breast cancer screenings, but as, as Rachel Maddow pointed later out later on, there was not even a y-axis on the whole chart. It didn't make sense. But he said, you know, this is, this is your numbers. And then, of course, it said at the bottom that it was created by an anti-choice organization, which is printed right there. And uh, I pointed that out, and he said, well, we're going to get to the bottom of that. But that was basically, that was the opening of that hearing. But there were a couple of things that happened that I do think are instructive. Um, one is, it was a real wake-up call for a lot of people who watched that hearing to realize 
who was in charge of Congress. I mean, just the hostility, really just downright rudeness, um, and their efforts to just sort of poke at me. And I did realize at some point during the middle of it that if I just didn't take the bait and get mad back at them, then they just got even angrier, and then veins are popping, and people are... Um, but one of my things, I have to give a shout out to one person who really helped me during that hearing, is about in the middle of the hearing, and I get a text from my son Daniel, um, who texted me and said, Mom, I'm watching on TV, you're doing such a great job. I think, I think raising me all those years really helped you prepare for this hearing <laughs> today. So thank you, Daniel. Um, anyway, uh, but... And I think the other thing, which is, again, just one of these inadvertent um, things that happen sometimes when we're under attack, is that millions of people got to learn more about what we did and the incredible life-saving services that we provide. And uh, that was, it ended up being, in a strange way, an opportunity. And after that hearing, I couldn't go down the street without someone stopping me and saying, thank you for what Planned Parenthood does. Uh, and I really want to give it a shout out to someone who's not here today, Dawn Legans, who's been my partner at Planned Parenthood for all these years. And she says that, you know, if, if the idea is to make lemonade out of lemons, at Planned Parenthood, we're like a lemonade factory, basically. We're just like churning it out. And um, it, it, was a, it was an important moment for us, um, and I th but, but it, it really it, it showed what it felt like to have the state really lined up against an organization. Struck by whatever side of the issue you're on, um, that there's good news. That you know abortion rates are down. That teen pregnancy is down. I mean, how do you sort of get people? And, and again, I mean, whatever side of the issue you're on, that's good news. You would think so. I mean, this is a, you would think that this is the incredible thing. So. You know, and I, I talk about in the book, and sometimes people ask me, what's the most important thing that ever happened in the 12 years you were at Planned Parenthood? Without a doubt, it was the phone call I got from President Barack Obama. Um, can I just say that name again? President Barack Obama. I mean, that was like, just like, uh, anyway, I know. Sorry, it's a cheap shot. But uh, when he called to say that he was about to announce, after a massive campaign that we had waged with others, he was about to announce to the White House that from now on, um, all women would get birth control covered at no cost, uh, no copay in their insurance plans. And that, that, was, that was huge. Um, and, the, um, and I think as a result, you know, one, now I think like more than 60 million folks do get that coverage, even though this administration is trying to take it away, and they are not going to be able to do that because women are up in arms all across this country. Um, but as a result, I think in the first year alone, women saved $1.4 billion on birth control pills. Okay, now that's some real money. That's some serious money. And of course, as you say, we're at the, we are at a historic all-time low for teenage pregnancy, the lowest rate we have ever had, low, uh, lowest rate of abortion since Roe was decided, 30-year low in unintended pregnancy. And yet, so you would think, okay, this is just good news. This is just good news all around. So we would just be able to all lock arms and say, let's do more of this. But instead, right now, this Department of Health and Human Services is trying to end the, basically, teen pregnancy prevention program, right? They're trying to now move back to a day in which young people couldn't get information that was medically accurate about sex ed for sex education. What if, by the way, there's a, there's a sort of it's, Orwellian uh, language that they use to describe, what, what is it? It's some phrase like 
risks? Yes. I know. I actually wrote it down because I can never remember it. Sexual risk avoidance, which is kind of the code word for abstinence only. I know. And then, but it's not only that, they also actually want, they're now taking to use the terms natural, um, now what is it called? Fertility, I'm sorry, I just, it's like some of this stuff, I just can't even get my brain around. It's basically fertility awareness, which is for natural birth control, instead of the old-fashioned kind a lot of us use, like birth control pills and things like that, right? Well, uh, you and, know what, though, and Cecile, Cecile, if it weren't for the rhythm method, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. <laughs> okay. And I'm glad you are, and I'm, I'm glad you are. It's just that I think that it's, it seems nonsensical that the family planning program of the United States of America that was actually signed into law by a Republican president, uh, that we would now be making that program something that actually discourages people from using what now they're terming artificial birth control. Um, because one thing I have learned in 12 years at Planned Parenthood is that birth control is really popular. And uh, it's, it, I just don't think that is, uh, but, but again, we have people, you know, ideologues that are in the Department of Health and Human Services that are um, really want to kind of take us back to a time, I guess, when women didn't have access to that care. And I just, I just don't get it. So um, what are some of the other things that, you know, you see going on. For instance, okay, HHS is actually, um, in a lot of measures, I mean, we talk a lot about the chaos of the right. Trump administration, but HHS is actually... Uh, Churning right along. Yeah, no, they are. I mean, I think that's what we all have to be really aware of, is that, look, I think with the election um, of Doug Jones in Alabama, uh, that into the Senate, that really the ability to really jam through some of the things that they had tried to, particularly around defunding a Planned Parenthood and around healthcare is gonna be much more difficult. But the danger, of course, is now everything goes to the states and then uh, in these agencies where it is really, really hard to stop things. And I think it's incredibly important that organizations like Planned Parenthood and other public health advocates lift up and you know, put some daylight on what's actually happening behind the scenes because these are kinds of things that are, they're, um, they're really nonsensical and wildly unpopular. I mean, sex education as well. This is something that overwhelmingly parents want their kids to get. So I just think we have to really explain to people what's happening. Well, um, we have a, a lot of great questions uh, here from the audience that were collected before we came up here, uh, but there are a whole bunch of them that kind of are about the same thing. So I'm gonna read them all one after another. Will you run for public office? Please say yes. <laughs> the Democrats have a rich history of, of civil rights leaders running for office. Why don't you run for president? Will you be running for office? Would you ever consider running for office? Will you please run for president? And my favorite from somebody who knows how to craft a lead, if you knew a woman who had experience leading one of the nation's most important advocacy organizations and has political experience, 
in her jeans, would you encourage her to run for office? <laughs> Daniel, did you put those in there? <laughs> well. <laughs> so I don't have any plans to run for office, although I know enough to, you know, never say never about anything. Um, and I, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, it's hypocritical to say to everybody else, oh, yeah, you got to go take some risks and not take risks yourself. But I know right now I I'm, I'm really am keenly keenly focused on finishing up um, my work at Planned Parenthood and, and passing on this awesome responsibility. Uh, and then I'm very focused on electing folks in November. I think this is, it's just been so inspiring to see a lot of progressives running, a lot of women running, and I hope that I can be helpful in turning out every single person we can to vote. Um, it, one of the things that has just been, that I have been feeling over this last year of seeing the marches and you know, record numbers of people at town hall meetings and folks going and, you know, speaking up their congressmen and stuff. It's like, if we do all that, you know, we march, we knit our pussy hats, we, uh, you know, come to Congress, we do, we've got to vote if we're going to actually finish the job. And that's really important to me. So I just want to, that's when it really has lasting, lasting impact and power. And your current plans are to stay in New York, which is where you live, is that correct? Yes, because I have a dog. Yeah. And a husband. <laughs> and they live there. Well, here's another question that I think is, is really interesting. During the Women's March, pro-life groups were asked not to participate, which this questioner agrees with. But is it a requirement that in order to be a feminist, you have to be pro-choice? And what do we, this questioner says, as pro-choicers say to those groups? Is it possible to be a, you know, a pro-life feminist? So uh, I think that on the Women's March issue, I actually think part of the platform of the Women's March was the right of all people to access full reproductive health care, including safe and legal abortion. And so I think it's fine for anyone to march. They can have their points of view, but that was a, that was a central tenet of, that, of those marches, and I think it's really important. I think it's, um, I do, I think the pro-choice, pro-life nomenclature, I'll just put out my personal point of view, I think it's completely outdated and kind of irrelevant, and it's not actually how most people think of the issue of abortion. And so I think that to the extent that um, the question isn't what do you personally feel about abortion? The question is what should the government be able to do to, to tell a woman what to do with her body? And this is where I think it's, um, and, and I would say, and I, I actually I do, I write about this in the book. Uh, um, I think it's really important that we separate out people's personal feelings, and I have total respect for any person about whatever their personal feelings are about abortion. Uh, I, I have um, been doing this work a long time. I really, really do completely respect that. But I don't believe it's the right of politicians uh, and government to tell women what they should do or any person what they should do about their pregnancy. And so I think to be a feminist, if you believe in women's autonomy and you believe in women's equal rights, um, you have to agree that part of that right is to determine 
what you do with your body. That's just pretty fundamental to me. Uh, and But what about, like Nancy Pelosi has said that, um, you know, that the party needs to accommodate, she points out that a whole lot of members of her own family oppose abortion. And she thinks that the party can't become, the Democratic Party cannot become too rigid, that there are parts of the country where a candidate, a Democrat who opposes abortion is just going to be more electable than a Democrat who doesn't, that the party needs to make room, say, for the Bart Stupaks. I, I know how you love that amendment. Um, what do you think of that in this electoral environment? I just don't think that a woman's right to control her body is something you can trade off for political expediency. And I, um, I have... I have an enormous amount of respect for, for Nancy Pelosi. In fact, I write about some, my own experiences working for her and how she really um, held the line on women's rights. Uh, so that's just my, that's my ethical point of view. But I will also say politically, and again, I've been in the 12 years of experience at Planned Parenthood, I've actually never seen a case in which it was advantageous for a candidate to be against women's rights. I literally have not seen that. And even in this, you know, it's, I know people are talking about the, the, uh, the most recent election in the congressional race in Pennsylvania and Connor Lamb. Uh, to me, again, he has his own personal feelings about abortion. I have total respect for that. But he also said, this is, not, this is not an issue that the government should be making. This is not a decision the government should be making. And that to me is, that's where the American people are. And, and uh, so anyway, I just don't think, just like there's a lot of other fundamental human rights, um, we're not going to trade away women's rights um, because it's, you know, makes somehow it's it, for electoral purposes. I just don't agree with it. And I don't think it's smart. And I think what voters really want to know is what do you stand for? And the Democratic Party needs to stand for this. That's just, they need to stand for women. You know, one of the, the challenges, I think, for the Democrats in midterm elections is that people who show up for presidential elections don't generally show up for congressional elections. And one of the groups that doesn't tend to show up are young people. And we have a number of questions here from college students. Uh, some, a couple of Georgetown students ask for your advice on how to get their male peers involved in the reproductive justice movement, and how do we talk to men about these issues being important in their lives as well? Yeah, okay, well, I just gotta give a shout out to the Hoyas for Choice. I think some of them are here, and they're like, uh, <laughs> they are amazing, uh, and uh, so thank you for, for what you're doing. You know, it's interesting, I actually think this is a generational shift in that, one, if you do the polling, men, they're as supportive of reproductive rights and birth control and everything else as women. And I think the most important thing is that they just need to be, they're, they're, sometimes they're not focused at it, on it like a, in a day-to-day -day way like we can be, uh, and I do think it requires education. But I also think that one of the encouraging things is, and, and this is something that, I don't know, I, I'm curious, you know, what you think and others, but, you know, one of the things about the Women's March, to so just kind of put it a little broader, is 
how many men there were at the Women's March. And I do think this is different. Men carrying signs um, saying, I'm here for my sister. I'm here for my daughter. I'm here for my granddaughter. And to me, what has changed is that now fathers, um, just to use that group, they want every single opportunity for their daughters that they have, for, that their sons have. And that is a, that's different from my generation. My father had no expectations uh, for me. Um, hell, we couldn't even, we played half-court basketball. That was all they thought we could do when I was growing up in Texas. And I, so I just think that, to me, it is, um, and, and you can't have, uh, you know, your daughters can't have as, as many opportunities as your sons if they don't have access to reproductive health care and rights. And so I actually think this is something that is changing, and we're seeing, obviously, the millennial generation uh, more supportive of every progressive issue, including uh, reproductive rights. And uh, look, whether it's the teenagers marching in Washington, cr creating this incredible march in Washington, D.C., uh, around gun reform, whether it is record numbers turning out to vote in the midterms, I actually think, I think that young people in this country are hot and bothered, and, and they're going to play a major, major role in November. So we have another question. Uh, who are your feminist icons? Besides, of course, your mom. Oh. My feminist icons. Okay, I love these kind of questions. So uh, I'm going to give two um, and then one. So one is a woman. So it's interesting because I'm from Texas and I feel like I'm constantly on the defensive about Texas. But there's a woman who isn't remembered always, but she was the first African-American congresswoman from Texas, Barbara Jordan, and she was amazing. That's my icon. I mean, um, and then uh, a living icon is Dolores Huerta, a woman who doesn't get enough credit for having, um, but I'm going to give you one other just really, uh, and you can read more about her in my book um, called Make Trouble. Uh, um, but... Uh, one of, the, one of the biggest benefits of my job at Planned Parenthood is I get to travel around the country and meet the most incredible people. And one of them I met this year was, I was in Arizona for a speech and it was the middle of the fight over the Affordable Care Act and the, the uh, Senator Jeff Flake had not held any town hall meetings but finally had relented and had planned one in Mesa, Arizona. So I was there that day and after the speech I met with this young group of um, organizers and they were getting their pink shirts together and their signs and they said, but we're really we're not gonna send everybody in in their pink shirts so that somebody could maybe get a, a question up at the microphone. And I thought, God, you guys are great organizers. And I, so I leave, I, I fly home to New York, and then I get in the middle of the night this video of a young woman, 16 years old. Her name's Deja Fox. She stands up in front of hundreds of people and somehow got, got called on. And she said, you know, I'm a 16-year-old. I depend on Planned Parenthood. Uh, for my birth control so that I can finish high school. I'm a Latina, I have lived on my own, and you are a United States Senator, a man of privilege, so what is it your right to take away my right to live out the American dream? It was amazing. She's 16 years old, and the entire, before she even finished, the entire place erupted, you know, older women in these pink pussy hats, you know, standing ovation, and um, I just thought, that's my kind of hero. So here's Deja, 16, now she's 17. She goes back, gets sex education changed in her high school, 
And this fall, she's going to college in New York City on a full ride, the first, first woman, first person ever in her family to go to college. That to me, that's my kind of heroine. And that's, that's exciting. Um, she's my icon. There are a couple of questions about sort of how you deal in an environment where you're constantly playing defense. Um, you know, we, we haven't, a white, I mean, all the levers of power right now in Washington are in one party's hands. And, you know, that party is in the hands of, uh, you know, some of its. <laughs> I, I, I know, I, I know. We're talking about hands, but. Um, but in the small hands of somebody, <laughs> yes. But a couple of questions are. You know, how do you sort of keep going when, when you feel like you're playing defense all the time? And how can, you know, at a moment when you don't have a lot of institutional levers, how do you keep going? So, I mean, I think, again, if you're a progressive, and I, I know a lot of folks here are, and it's really what I try to write about in my book, is that, you know, and if you're really trying for hard stuff, you are going to lose more times than you win. And you just have, that's okay. That... I mean, in fact, if it's easy, then someone probably already would have done it. And so I think it's important to just, to really fight for what you believe in. And, and then sometimes everything aligns and you actually, you actually do win, and then you have to claim credit for it. And I, that's where I feel like this, look, I was actually, I was with Sherrod Brown the other night in, in Ohio. For some of you know him, he's a senator from Ohio who's... Um, just phenomenal, you know, running for re-election, and we were doing a meeting, and we were doing a, or like an event for him, and he said, you know, I didn't give Planned Parenthood like a 10% chance of beating back the defunding effort. You know, the Republicans had Congress, they got the White House, all this, and yet people never gave up. And that's what to me is inspiring about organizing, is that when people do it, even when they say you can't. Um, and that, I think, is really what keeps you going. But then you have to, you have to win. When you, when you get your wins, you have to take credit for them and give people credit for them because that's what encourages people. That's why I like to talk about the success stories of these women running in Wisconsin, of African-American women electing Doug Jones in Alabama. I mean, that's just, like, huge. It's huge. And so... I think that I do think that sometimes as progressives we don't do enough to celebrate our victories, um, um, but I think it's pretty remarkable, given everything that's transpired in the last 14 months, um, how much wind we all have in our sails. And I really do think, I mean, again, it's it's kind of why I wrote this book because I I felt like right after the election I couldn't get on the subway without a young person saying to me like, "What do I do?" As if there was like like one thing you could do and like make it all go away, you know, and it would feel better and, or you could change what had happened. And I wrote, well, I can't talk to everybody on the subway, so I'll just write this book instead. And I actually want to shout out Lauren Peterson, who co-authored it with me, who's a really incredible author and uh, woman. Um, but I, I think the reason why it's important is that you never know what that one thing is. And, and I guess I learned that when we elected mom governor of Texas is, who knew if it was that last labor rally we did in Beaumont, Port Arthur, or the caravan of teachers that went through the Rio Grande border. And so all of that, you know, 
that's just how social change happens. And so I hope that people in this moment um, feel inspired to keep fighting for what's right. Because the other thing that we have that frankly our opponents don't have is we have the majority of the people in this country on our side. And that's a huge thing to start with. It's a big thing. Um, we also have a question for a, a veteran in our office, in our office, in our audience. I spent too much time in my office today. Um, it says nearly every Republican administration chooses to defund UNFPA, the UN Family Planning uh, Fund. Right. And when I was in Iraq last year, and UNFPA was providing critical services to women, including sexual assault survivors in some of the hardest to reach areas of Mosul. That's what right. about a lot of these issues? I mean, are, are not just domestic issues. They are international issues. Where do things stand on that? It, it's, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, and you're right, there's not enough education in this country about what's happening. And so Planned Parenthood, we run programs and support um, women's health programs in, in Africa and in Latin America. And unfortunately, part of our job now has been not only to provide support to these programs, but also to document what's happening as a result of U.S. policy. So one of the, uh, you know, one of the first um, acts of the president, if not the first act, was to sign this expansive global gag rule, which basically denied funding to all kinds of maternal health programs, family planning programs. I mean, it was a, it's the most cynical political move. And of course, what we've heard back in from our um, partners in these countries is that women have been lined up uh, you know, down the streets desperate to try to get health care now before these programs get cut off. And so I think an important thing we have to do as Planned Parenthood, but also as citizens of the, of the globe, is let people know the impact of our policy, because it's far beyond our borders. And, but if I, in addition, it is in our borders. And, you know, one of the things that, that I have, we've experienced in this last year at Planned Parenthood is, the week after the election, we had a 900% spike in women trying to get in to get IUDs at Planned Parenthood that would last the entire Trump administration, okay? And that is, no, no person should be deciding their birth control method based on being afraid that the president will take it away. Um, I mean, that's just, that's just wrong. And of course, now we are seeing in this country immigrants terrified to come get health care. And at Planned Parenthood, you know, our motto is care no matter what. We see everybody. We don't care your immigration status. We don't care your income. We don't care your geography. But it is still the policies of this administration are, um, are impacting the ability of folks to get just the most basic health care. And it's, so it's here, and it's global, and we have to shine a light on it. So thank you for the question, whoever, whoever raised that. And I'm sorry, I should have said... And we have defunded UNFPA, the United Nations Family Planning um, Program, which is, um, it's an outrage. It's immoral. Uh, we also have a question here about social media. And how do you, how, do you have any advice on how to deal with trolls and naysayers and just the general kind of stuff that gets thrown at you on social media? Or do you even read it? Yeah, I wish I knew a solution, so I'm just going to be candid. I really don't read Twitter. I find it, um, I, I send outgoing, I don't really take the incoming so much, and I mainly try to post 
things on Instagram, and a lot of them are of my dachshund. So that's just kind of how I think about um, dealing with social media. No, it, but, but it is also an incredibly important tool. I mean, not to make light of it. I wish I knew. Obviously, it seems like there's some pretty high up people in Silicon Valley who don't know how to deal with this either. Um, but, it, but it's something we gotta, we, we've got to take, um, take seriously. I mean, it, and I, I think one thing, I guess, if I could say some positive thing about social media, you know, for years at Planned Parenthood, um, and not just at Planned Parenthood, the stories of people just were not told in the media. With all respect to, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, it was very hard to get stories out there. And one of the amazing things to me is, uh, and we've seen this over, a, you know, in a variety of different um, uh, episodes during this 12 years, is that finally getting, having social media, having a platform for, particularly for women, whose stories were never told before to be told, has been really important. And I want to give a shout out here to the reproductive justice community that has really been in the forefront of taking away stigma and shame around issues of abortion and reproductive health care by telling stories and being upfront and open about the fact that this is part of our, these, these stories are part of our lives. And I think social media has provided a platform and an outlet to get, to lift up people um, that otherwise would never be heard from. Um, in fact, what I just mentioned, Deja Fox, I don't know how many millions of people saw her testimony or her, her exchange with Jeff Flake that would have never happened without the opportunity to put it up online. So I guess there's some benefits to it, but um, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. We are coming close to the end of our hour, and I am going to end with a completely lightweight question because it goes to my basic criticism of your book, which is that you begin every chapter with description of a food and you don't have recipes. So could you do the... <laughs> so every If you haven't read the book yet, every chapter begins with what she's cooking and what she's listening to at the moment. So it says, and I also saw one of the Q&As with you, was it People Magazine, where they said, what's the one thing you lie about? And you said, how much butter I put in my pie crust. So it says on the back book flap that you have, you have, love to bake pies. So what's your favorite kind to bake? Oh, my favorite pie recipe? Oh my God, I'm sure that many of my, my friends are here who know. Well, it is absolutely cherry pie. It is, and I am a religious follower of the Tartine Bakery pie crust recipe from San Francisco. Okay, can I get some love for that? I'm telling you, it's the best. And I use the cook's recipe, but, um, but as Daniel will tell you, and all of my kids, we're all pie bakers, and we spend a lot of time perfecting, perfecting our pies. But I come from Texas, where pie is a, it's a religion. It, it's, it's something we worship. Um, so I'll put the cherry pie recipe up. Right, Okay. Right. There's, that's what that's what online is for. Okay, one last. I said that was. So, what's your prediction? What happens this fall? Wow. <laughs> A murmur went throughout the crowd. Um, I mean, I I think we will have. Uh, record turnout by women in America. I think we'll have record turnout for by young people in America. Um, I think the Democrats have a very good chance of taking back the House of Representatives, and that would be a good thing. Um, and, and then I think, 
post-November, we are going to see the biggest group of people excited about running for president that we have seen in my lifetime. Uh, and that, to me, is a good thing for our democracy. I think that um, we have, I think folks have done an amazing job in this last several months, and I'm really proud of the fact that at Planned Parenthood, we, we don't just stand up for Planned Parenthood and our health centers and our patients. We stand up for the LGBTQ community. We stand up for Muslims. We stand up for immigrants. We stand up for dreamers. We stand up because black lives matter. And to me, it is all of these issues and all of these movements that are going to stand together and they're going to turn out record numbers of voters and take this country back in the direction it needs to go. That's my prediction. Well, this, this was great. And I loved your book. And um, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for doing this, Karen. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.